Welcome back. This is lesson number two on confronting Christian nationalism, and we're using a curriculum that uh, is from the Vote Common Good uh, organization. If you find this information interesting, uh, they do have a, a podcast and a YouTube channel that you can listen to additional information so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to continue um, our understanding of Christian nationalism using a mixture of discussion as well as video clips. And then next week, we will finish this off. This coming Sunday in the series I'm doing, uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about fighting, uh, fighting homophobia. And what I want to do in the month of February uh, is each Wednesday night, I want to take one of the clobber passages that are often used against the LGBT community, and I actually want to do a little bit of exegetical footwork on it to understand what is it that's trying to be communicated in each of these passages, and how do we apply what is being communicated to our own day and age. So hopefully that'll be of some help. I think I'm going to probably pique some interest on that. Uh, this coming Sunday when we talk about um, the fight against a lot of bigotry and prejudice against a community that we dearly love. So uh, that's kind of what we're going to do in the month of February. And so tonight we're going to take a look at um, the ongoing discussion that we started last week. So tonight what I want us to do is remind ourselves that there is a difference between uh, political ideals as and they are very different from religion and the two should be kept separate uh, if we don't do that what we sometimes find is religion can be wrapped up in a flag and I think that's what we have seen uh, since uh, 2016 and in particular the attack on the Capitol building so in this uh, particular video with Catherine Stewart uh, I want you to take a look at um, two questions that I have at the bottom of the slide there. One is, why is it important to note the difference between Christianity and Christian nationalism? And secondly, uh, what Christian groups does this individual, Catherine Stewart, identify who might be attracted to this particular mentality? So again, each of these videos are only three or four or five minutes long in length, but they provide fodder for some discussion. So keep these couple of questions in your mind. And then uh, the next slide, we're going to provide some distinctions uh, between Christianity and Christian nationalism as it pertains to our interaction in our civil world, uh, civic duty and responsibilities and that type of thing. So let's look at the video at this time. And what I'll do with each video clip that we're using tonight, I will minimize um, uh, our viewpoint here, just so you can see uh, the full uh, video without any uh, pictures of ourselves on it. I uh, just wanna remind you that if you do still have your uh, microphone unmuted, it'll pick up anything uh, as well as the soundtrack from the video clip. So just keep that in mind. Okay, so here we go. Can we talk a bit about what 
Christian nationalism is particularly and why you recognize that it is such a problem and such a threat in, in the United States? Sure. Um, I mean, let's talk about what Christian nationalism is and what, let's talk about what it is not. The first thing to know is it's not Christianity or even a religion at all, properly speaking. It's a political ideology and its representatives insist that the foundation of legitimate government is bound up with a reactionary understanding of the Christian faith. It basically says that the United States is uh, founded on the Bible and that our country can only succeed uh, if it stays true to this foundation. Uh, it's also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population uh, by getting them to vote for the political candidates that the movement favors. And basically for um, creating a new elite, concentrating uh, power in the hands of a new leadership cadre of people who subscribe to illiberal ideologies. Mm. Um, it's important to know that it's a leadership-driven movement. It's not uh, sort of bottom-up. It's not driven by the rank and file. It's a top-down movement. Or say something else about what the movement is not. It is not just about evangelicals. I mean, it includes mm. evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals, including uh, some white evangelicals and most evangelicals of color. Um, and it also includes representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion, um, also conservative Catholics in particular have become a critical element and the movement actually even has support from individuals and groups that do not identify as Christian at all. And what unites them is not a distinct theology, but a common political vision. Okay, so let's uh, talk about these couple of questions that are on this slide here. Why do you think it is significant uh, to note the difference between these two elements, Christianity as a religion and Christian nationalism as a political movement? And secondly, um, who do you think might be attracted to Christian nationalism? So uh, do you have any thoughts on that that you'd like to have input on? So first one, I think, is um, a distinction between um, a, a group of people who might not necessarily even identify as Christians, but do identify with the political vision of Christian nationalism, uh, in particular, um, white people that are trying to kind of hold on to uh, the positions of power and that type of thing. So I do think when you begin to distinguish between Christianity and Christian nationalism, Christianity is defined by uh, those of us who claim to be followers of Christ versus Christian nationalism, I think, is a title that could, uh, uh, first of all, speak of the majority of people who might be attracted to this uh, actually has kind of a outlook that the nation started as a Christian nation, and that's the way we'd like to keep it. But once it becomes more political, I think that there's other people who might be atheistic or agnostic or some other uh, world religion that might want to 
hang on to some of those political ideals that could possibly be in support of Christian nationalism as well. So I think that with that in mind, the distinction between Christianity and Christian nationalism is Christianity, first as uh, a as an individual, one who claims allegiance to Christ, and as a religion, those who follow the teachings of Christ versus using Christianity to be a political power uh, within the nation. So anybody have any other things that you want to comment on in regard to this first uh, little video clip here? It's blurred as far as the, you know, calling it Christian nationalism. It's um, tricking you into thinking it's Christianity. Good, good point. Yeah, so it, it might be something that uh, a lot of people could be confused by because it does use the term Christian when it is probably more uh, related to conservative political uh, ideals. Our, um, the pastor of the church we go to down here, because MLK Day was the next day, talked about white nationalism. Mm. a little bit on Sunday. And it sure seemed quite similar to Christian Christian nationalism. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of overlap with that. Uh, that's why I was saying there'd be other people that wouldn't define themselves as Christian that would right. still resonate with the political vision of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's uh, talk about some distinctions. I think this will be helpful here. So um, from this particular video, um, maybe we might be able to define uh, some distinctions between uh, Christ and uh, as our primary allegiance versus our earthly citizenship. For those of us here online now, it's uh, citizenship within the United States. But uh, in reality, an earthly citizenship can imply around the world. I mean, people that are devoted to their particular nation and government and that type of thing. So a couple of things to keep in mind, and there are seven of them. First of all, first of all uh, people of all faiths and even people who do not have faith both have the right and the responsibility uh, to engage constructively in the public square. So when we think about uh, people that are citizens of the United States or citizens of another country, they have every right uh, to be able to engage in the process of um, what our country should look like and where it should go on into the future. Just because an individual is an atheist or an agnostic should not disqualify them from being a part of that conversation and that decision-making process. One of the things that I think um, we hang our hat on as a nation is the fact that um, people of faith and people that don't have faith have an equal vote within uh, the country. And so sometimes that might not be the case in other parts of the world, but in our ideals, that's the case. Secondly, <clears throat> patriotism does not require us to minimize our religious convictions. 
So I think one of the things that often gets confused is the merging of particular religious convictions. And if we hold to a particular religious conviction, then uh, we're either a good patriot or a bad patriot. And this week's message will illustrate that. If we believe that um, uh, that same-sex marriage is something that should be offered to the citizens of our country, uh, and we hold to that, it should not minimize us in our voice in the public square. Yet, if Christian nationalism might have its way, uh, we might find that uh, people who hold a differing viewpoint uh, might be silenced in some respect. So patriotism has to do with the common good. It has to do with doing what's best for the country as a whole, not just partic a particular group of people. Thirdly, uh, one's religious convictions and affiliations, or even our, the lack thereof, should be irrelevant to one standing in the civic community. So <clears throat> I know when Barack Obama was the president, there was often accusations that he wasn't a Christian uh, that fit the evangelical mold. Uh, some even accused him of being Muslim. Uh, that should have no relevance whatsoever on whether he's a good or bad president, whether he's Muslim, agnostic, atheistic, or a devoted uh, Christian. But that type of conversation went on quite a bit when uh, Barack Obama was president. If you didn't like his policies or, or whatever, that's one thing. But to accuse him of uh, being Muslim and therefore disqualified uh, from the position of being president, then that's crossing a line. Number four, government should not prefer one religion over another, or even non-religion for that matter, religion over non-religion. But what Christian nationalism seems to pursue is that Christianity, as defined by this marriage with extreme right um, conservatism uh, should have more of a preference than other people within the nation. Of course, that's not part of the founding uh, vision of the country. And uh, we're, I'm gonna play for you just a short little uh, line from John Meacham in a second uh, that uh, Thomas Jefferson himself fought for 10 years uh, for uh, this e equal uh, religion, and you'll hear that in a moment. Number five, religious instruction is best left uh, to houses of worship, other religious institutions, and within the family as well. Uh, in other words, uh, it seems as though it works best when there is a clear distinction between church and state, that um, the state and the uh, political arena should be concerned about the common good for all its citizens uh, and not merge religious instruction into that if it's going to best serve a variety of different people. Number six, America's historic commitment to religious pluralism enables faith communities to live in civic harmony with one another without sacrificing our theological convictions. So as you know, there are thousands of different denominations even within Christianity in our country. 
And to be able to uh, believe what we believe, uh, I'm sure even within uh, those of us who are online right now, we will have differences of outlooks on particular topics. But that shouldn't um, prevent us from working together to build a, uh, a nation that uh, works well and serves uh, its citizens. But uh, again, a lot of times what happens within Christianity is the division is we're the only ones that got it right. And I think uh, I always chuckle at that because as you know by now in our studies here on Wednesday night, the Bible is not an easy book. It's a very difficult book and it can be taken in a variety of different ways. And to think uh, with um, arrogance that we are the only ones that got all the pieces of it right is to be blind, I think, to um, the, the reality. And so here, I think this commitment of religious pluralism uh, is an important part of the history of our country, uh, that you can be a Calvinist or an Arminian or a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or whatever, and still be able uh, to live within civic harmony with one another. Uh, some of some groups uh, in different nations, you think about um, the, uh, the Sunni and the uh, Shiite versions of Muslims, they can't get along because they think their particular uh, viewpoint of Islam should be the only one that the nation holds. So they break out in war. Uh, uh, years ago, there was a that type of civil uh, war that was going on between Protestants and Catholics as well. So um, we need to make the distinction that um, that we can have a citizenship within a country and get along together and work toward things together, even if we don't see things exactly the same way. And finally, number seven, uh, to conflate religious authority with political authority can become idolatrous because we will then kind of worship a particular uh, type of political um, persuasion. And sometimes what happens as a part of, of that is when that group gains power, uh, they can oppress minorities or marginalized groups of people and uh, use religion as a weapon uh, rather than a personal conviction of faith. So I think those are some good distinctions to keep in mind. Do you have any comments or observations that you'd like to make? So here's the key question I think that uh, comes up over and over again. And that is, was America founded as a Christian nation? I think that's kind of at the core of Christian nationalism that um, that America started out as a Christian nation. Therefore, we should get back to our roots of that. And what we then see is there's a particular uh, vision of how that looks. And there's often a myopic outlook on um, the history of our nation. And a lot of times, the things that were not Christian at all, stealing land from natives, uh, using uh, slaves to build the country, is often overlooked, overlooked or minimized. 
So here's a couple of points. Uh, number one, a core belief of Christian nationalism is that America was founded not as a pluralistic democracy that affords religious freedom for all, but rather it was founded distinctively as a Christian nation. And number two, Christian nationalism fuses the kingdom of God with a preferred vision of the kingdom of this world, uh, whatever that may be. It might be uh, a particular interest uh, group, a particular form of government, um, a particular political program, all of those type of things. So our second video tonight is Amanda Tyler, and a couple of questions to keep in mind as we uh, look at this video is how does Amanda Tyler explain from historical and legal perspective why the founders were not seeking to form a Christian nation? And secondly, which elements of her presentation are most compelling? So let's watch the video and then we'll come back to that. Can you give us your definition of Christian nationalism? Like uh, it, it, it's a term that a lot of us have thought about and worried about. It doesn't seem like very many people self-identify with it. Like it's hard to find people who go around saying like, I am a Christian nationalist. It feels like it's a description of a set of beliefs and behaviors more than a self-identifying uh, perspective. But I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. Do you, how do you talk about it? And how do you explain the issue of Christian nationalism and the, the topic of Christian nationalism? I think that's really a, a vital point because if I, we should have a common understanding about what we're talking about as far as Christian nationalism goes. And I'm going to point to the statement that's available at ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. You know, the work that we did back in 2019 uh, was about providing an advocacy platform for people who were interested in learning more and for taking a public stand. And the, the centerpiece of the project is a statement. And in the statement itself, we define Christian nationalism as a political ideology that seeks to merge our identities as Americans and Christians. Um, so a few things here. You know, one, we are specifically talking in the American context. Uh, this is something that comes up. This is not uh, particular to the United States, but uh, but in our work, we are we are really focusing on the American expression of Christian nationalism, and so we talk explicitly about American and Christian identities. Um, but we also want to distinguish that Christian nationalism is not Christianity. Christian nationalism is a political ideology. Christianity is a religion. That said, <laughs> you can't totally divorce Christianity out of it. It would be great just to say, oh, this has nothing to do with Christianity. That would be yeah. really easy, right? That's not accurate. Um, and that's because Christian nationalism uses the narratives and the symbols, and in some cases, even the theology of Christianity. Um, to further this political ideology. But, but as we define Christian nationalism, it is not itself a religion. It is more about identity than religion um, in a lot of ways. And we get at this in one of our resources that we have available at Christians Against Christian Nationalism, a really handy one pager um, that your guests last week, uh, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry helped us put together called what is Christian nationalism? And we talk about how it's more identity than religion. Um, when we define Christian nationalism, I think it's also important to say what it's not. It's not patriotism. 
patriotism is a love of country and we can love, we can show our love of country in a number of different ways. We can wave an American flag, we can protest in the streets, we can exercise our constitutional rights, right? These are all different ways to be patriotic. Nationalism is a love of country that also requires an allegiance to it above everything else, including our theological views. And so when our theological view, when our, when our patriotism starts to ask us to sacrifice our theological views, that's no longer patriotism, that's nationalism. And, uh, and particularly as we're talking about here, Christian nationalism. Okay, so uh, any comments on that particular video clip? Um, does it did it help when we she was talking a little bit of a distinction of uh, nationalism from patriotism? And um, is there any clarification that's needed, or do you have any other insights or observations on that particular video clip? If not, what we're going to do is we're going to go to our founders um, and we're going to take a look at what vision did they actually have. You know, it's always best to go back to the source. And when we think about whether our nation uh, was founded as a Christian nation, it would be best to think a little bit about who uh, brought the founding vision of the Constitution together, and what are what is actually found in that Constitution, and what did they fight for? So um, you can see here, Article Number Six of the U.S. Constitution states that there should be no religious test for public office, which means that um, a person that could run for president or run for Senate or run for the House of Representatives, uh, they can be people that are very religious or not religious at all. And there should be no religious test. They should be based on their uh, skills. They should be based on the merit of their vision, uh, those type of things, rather than on kind of meeting a particular religious criteria um, and that type of thing. Secondly, the First Amendment in the Constitution uh, starts with these words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, if you know church history, I think a lot of things went askew when Constantine in 314 AD made Christianity the state religion. All of a sudden, uh, uh, political and religious was merged together for his own purposes and the power that he had, as well as using religious symbolism uh, as a way of saying God is on our side in some of these political, I mean, military quests that uh, were going on. That began um, a, a period uh, in church history where both the king and the pope were tied at the hip. And what we find is that in some cases in the course of church history, the pope had more power than the king. And then other times the king had more power than the pope. 
when we find that taking place, uh, there were uh, occasions in the course of uh, history where um, kings decided they wanted a different pope, and uh, so they would take one off and put another on the uh, their uh, office, that type of thing. And so it caused all kinds of different problems uh, not too long after Christianity got started. But that brings us back to kind of our own vision in our country. So um, this particular uh, thing that I listen to each morning is called Reflections of History with John Meacham, historian. Actually, it was uh, yesterday or the day before's podcast, and again, these are only like five minutes long, uh, where he is talking about Thomas Jefferson's fight for 10 years for the statute of religious freedom. And I thought it was so insightful that I want to play it for you now, and um, then we can come back and we can uh, talk a little bit about uh what is it that the original architects had in mind when they put the founding uh, vision together for our country? So let's listen to that. You'll still see the same screen. This is audio only. To availability, additional terms apply. It had taken nearly a decade, but finally it was law. On this date in 1786, the Virginia legislature enacted Thomas Jefferson's Statute for Religious Freedom a landmark in the history of liberty of conscience. Religious freedom has been called America's first liberty, a tradition of breaking the old world linkage between civil rights and religious professions and ecclesiastical taxes. Here is part of what Jefferson wrote. An act for establishing religious freedom. Whereas almighty God hath created the mind free, that all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens or by civil incapacitations tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness, and therefore are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, who being Lord both of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either, as was in his almighty power to do. That the impious presumption of the legislators and rulers civil as well as ecclesiastical, who being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, and as such endeavoring to impose them on others, hath established and maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world and through all time. That to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical. That even the forcing of him to support this or that teacher of his own religious persuasion is depriving him of the comfortable liberty of giving his contributions to the particular pastor whose morals he would make his pattern and whose powers he feels most persuasive to righteousness and is withdrawing from the ministry those temporary rewards which, proceeding from an approbation of their personal conduct, are an additional incitement to earnest and unremitting labors for the instruction of mankind. That our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than our opinions in physics or geometry. And finally, that truth is great and will prevail if left to herself, that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict 
unless by human interposition, disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate, error ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted to contradict them. Be it enacted by General Assembly that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall he be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall he otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. So wrote Thomas Jefferson. So um, he dips back into the actual uh, historical archives of our nation. And there you can see Thomas Jefferson was casting a vision for religious plurality within our country. Uh, he does use some Christian vocabulary in that statement that Meacham recited. Um, but yet at the same time, the crystal clear vision that Thomas Jefferson had was that the state would not have um, the power to impose a particular religion upon its citizens. And so when we think about um, was the nation uh, founded as a Christian nation, I think is to confuse the original vision of being a place where it is safe to practice your religion, whoever you are and wherever you are from. Now, certainly Christianity did play a, a, a great influence upon the early chapters of our country, primarily because of who first came over, not to discover America, the natives were already here, but to uh, want to find a new opportunity where they could practice their religion without persecution. And of course, they had other political visions as well. So whether it's the pilgrims or the Puritans, uh, those type of groups, uh, they came looking for freedom. And it's kind of ironic, though, that uh, this particular vision that they were the benefactors of uh, quickly became uh, one that they wanted to impose their vision upon others. And of course, uh, it's not too um, far into the history of our nation where uh, these groups of people would hold uh, the Salem witch trials, uh, persecution and violence and that type of thing against particular groups of people using their religious convictions as a justification. So it, it doesn't take long before religion goes astray and religion gets weaponized. So uh, you have some thoughts on Meacham's um, uh, podcast, or do you have any uh, responses to this question at the bottom of the slide? Why was it important for the original architects of our constitutional democracy to place constitutional restrictions against the establishment of religion. You have any thoughts?
If not, we'll move ahead. So a key question that um, we can now ask is uh, reflected in this next video segment, is Christian nationalism embraced only by a fringe element? In other words, how many people are actually pulled into this movement? Um, is what happened on January the 6th, two years ago, something that was an anomaly, or is it something that uh, actually does reflect upon where the majority of Christians are within uh, the history of our nation now? So Samuel Perry, who was the one that um, was introduced to us last week, he and Andrew Whitehead have written a couple of different books uh, that have been mentioned. And what we find is that uh, he comments upon um, this particular uh, a dynamic of, okay, how big of a movement is this? So let's watch. I would say, I think this has been one of those things that uh, if we get pushback from the book on it is, it is people are, are just shocked that this isn't a fringe thing. Uh, as much as they would like to, so uh, I'll just give you an example, and I don't mean to, I'm, I'm not, I'm not bashing anybody on here, but uh, after the Capitol insurrection, uh, Al Mohler uh, goes on his show and is talking about Christian nationalism and addresses some of the things that we had written, um, but but ultimately he says, hey, this sounds like a really bad thing, but you know these people aren't real Christians, or this is just a marginal fringe kind of thing, and let's 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 make sure that. In all of this conversation, Christians aren't denied the opportunity to influence politics for the better, and, and we understand that. But when you actually look at the data and you see this item by item with where American white evangelicals in particular stand on these issues, uh, well over half of white evangelicals believe that the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation, right? Like well over half. That's not, a, that's not marginal. That's, that's, that is over half of them. Um, in, in recent surveys, and this one blows people away, in recent surveys, uh, we've been asking the question, asking Americans, what do they think about uh, whether the founding documents are divinely inspired, like the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And well over two-thirds of white evangelicals believe the founding documents are divinely inspired. That is not fringe. And so I think what, one of the things that we, we, in the book, I mean, if, if there's a powerful takeaway of the book, it is, it is how pervasive uh, this, this ideology actually is. And you can compare this to things that white evangelicals are really complaining about and fearful of right now. So there's all of this fear and conversation about wokeness or critical race theory. They're having entire conferences to denounce this thing that they feel like is so pernicious and so scary and so pervasive that they use this word. Uh, and yet, where, where is the measurement for such a thing? If you tried to, I bet it would be less than 5% of the, of the white evangelical population would be characterized by anything that would be characterized by critical race theory. And yet Christian nationalism talks about the majority of that crowd. Uh, and so if we, if we uh, focus our attention, our argument has been, if we, if we want to focus our attention on an ideology that we feel like is pernicious and harmful and pervasive, uh, it ought to be white Christian nationalism first and foremost. Okay, so incidentally, um, uh, Samuel Perry is a graduate of Dallas Seminary, which uh, surprises me a little bit uh, that he has written so um, 
so much about this topic because I would think that the roots of my own education would tend to be uh, to the right of his observations. But uh, what is interesting in his particular video clip, I think, is this idea that the founding documents of our country were divinely inspired, uh, even as we use that language to talk about the Bible being inspired as well. Now, when you begin to talk in those terms, you can't push back on things like, okay, maybe we should take a second look at the Second Amendment when it was written, uh, about uh, people being able to own guns and stuff. We didn't have the military armament and the military-grade rifles. I mean, all of those type of things come into this discussion and uh, the idea of uh, violence that comes from the use of those type of weapons and so forth. But if you see the documents as divinely inspired, what that suggests is you can't amend it, you can't change it. Um, and of course there are amendments to the constitution, but one of the things that I think is important to understand is that uh, it seems as though um, one way to safeguard further amendments, uh, if, if people have a particular outlook on something, is to use the language of inspiration. I have never heard of it uh, being uh, deemed as inerrant. However, that's not too far behind inspiration. So um, I don't know what your thoughts are on some of these uh, things, but do you have any comments or questions on this? I have a comment on, uh, it's not on the constitution, but on uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. I think it's a good example. Some people think that the Pledge of Allegiance was probably written in 1776, uh, along with the uh, the rest of the, uh, the you know the Constitution and the like. Uh, but it really wasn't even written until the late 1800s, and it had nothing. It said nothing about God in it. It wasn't until 60 some years later in the 1954 when they put one nation under god into the pledge of allegiance i was i was born in 56 so i mean it it wasn't until our age group when uh, when one nation under god was inserted in there and most people think that it was originally in there that the pledge of allegiance is hundreds of years old it's not um, but it's, it's just another thing that we inserted God into and people would, we, we would have a civil war if they tried to take one nation under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm -hmm. Or if you were to say we should take in God, we trust off our uh, currency and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have a real battle on your hands, that's for sure. Yeah, but it is interesting. Um, you know, I'm working on some research for my message this week. Did you know 
that the translation in the Bible homosexual does not appear in any translation until 1946. Interesting. Uh, there are other ways of translating some of the things that we'll look at in our next study in February, but it, um, you know, it's it's one of those things that do we tend to take things and push them back in on uh, some of the original material as a way of either justifying or defending, and I think that's. Uh, would you agree with that, Brenda? Is that is that kind of what we are having a tendency to do here? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Other I comments? A, I have on a comment on that. Yeah. On that, when Brenda says something about the Pledge of Allegiance, about them taking the word under God out of there, is that why they don't recite it today? I don't, well, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if schools recite the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. Uh, I don't know that they do either. I, I mean, our two kids never said anything about that. But I remember, I remember every day when I was in sixth grade, um, uh, uh, Mr. Sudbury was his name, was my teacher. Um, we would do a Pledge of Allegiance uh, and also open up in prayer. Now, it was a Christian prayer. Uh, and you know, Christians would approve that and say, hey, we got to get prayer back in school. But let's think about uh, other religions, uh, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever it may be. Um, and those individuals are in school as well. Is that a, a way of superimposing our particular religious convictions upon all those kids in the classroom? So that's a big area of debate, you know. Um, we should go back to the days when we said the Pledge of Allegiance and said prayer and did Bible reading um, uh, within a secular, this isn't a Christian school, in a secular mm -hmm. setting, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah. So, Mark, you said you did the same thing in school? We did the same thing for, I don't know how many years. I mean, maybe till high school. I don't know, but I just remember... You know, every morning that was the first thing you did was say this pledge of allegiance. Now I don't remember any prayer. Uh, I I'm, think just that... thinking, I'm just thinking about if they still do that today because of the word God. And I guess God could be a generic term, but you know, I yeah. I don't know. I yeah. think yeah, just to just to be clear, they no one's talked about taking it out, but it wasn't put in. One nation under God was not put into the Pledge of Allegiance until 1954. Mm -hmm. um and and there's never been any talk about taking it out but i i recall one of the reasons i think it was dropped from being recited was uh, pledging allegiance to a nation i think um jehovah's witnesses had mm -hmm. objections to it it wasn't, it wasn't so much God as it was pledging allegiance to a nation. There's some religions that don't like to do that. Um, and there may have been some objections to God. I'm not, in being in it, I'm not sure. Well, probably from Jehovah Witness or an atheist, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they still say it in Beechwood, so. Do they? Yeah, they have to stand up you know, and look at the flag. Now, not all of them say it, but mm -hmm. I mean, there are some that do. Mm -hmm. So I, as I remember, 
um, we only did a Pledge of Allegiance in grade school. Yeah. The prayer element of it, I think, happened to be on the shoulders of this particular teacher that did it every day. I don't think that was done throughout the elementary school. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that was just him. Uh, but, you know, I do remember, I think, moving into junior high, I think the Pledge of Allegiance then became something that was a part of uh, on the PA system, uh, kind of like in homeroom, because you started to change classes in middle mm -hmm. school and that type mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, so if I remember correctly, and then I don't remember any of that in high school, though. I don't, you know, I, it's that seemed to have gone away at that point. Yeah. Of course, that was in the 70s by then when I was in high school. So you know, I don't know if they did that in prior generation in the 50s or whatever. I don't know. But um, but at least that's kind of my memory, if it serves me correctly. So. All right. Let's keep moving ahead. So I'm going to show the next two short video clips together. The first one is by Kristen Dumais. She is the one that wrote uh, the book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, we used uh, some of her material in our study called Intersection. Remember when we were talking mm -hmm. about culture and conflict and stuff like that. Uh, the second video is Shane Claiborne. Um, and uh, he is an, he's a unique individual. He uh, worked alongside of Tony Campolo. If you remember uh, Tony mm -hmm. Campolo, uh, 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 a strong Christian preacher that um, um, was known for it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That was his line that um, uh, he used it uh, for his Easter uh, celebrations and stuff. Anyways, uh, I'm going to show them together and then we'll come back to this. Uh, they're very short. Um, Kristen Dumez is a professor up in Grand Rapids. Shane Claiborne is um, an author. He uh, also travels around and uh, he, when did we do that, uh, SD? It was a couple of years ago. Corey and you and I went uh, down somewhere. Brenda went. Brenda went too, I think. Did you go, Brenda? Where it was uh, turning, um, turning, uh, swords into plowshares. He was beat. He had a guy that was beating guns into farming implements. Do you remember that? Did, no, that, Maybe it wasn't no, it wasn't her. I know it was Corey and you and I. I don't know if anybody else went, but and I don't even remember what community that was in. It was at it was a church. It was over on the west side. Yeah. So, all right, let's watch and then we'll come back. So where where are we going next? It's, it's really hard to say because, well, it's always hard to say because you never, it, 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 things, um, things happen that you don't expect. And, you know, it can just, it just we can veer off in, in many different directions. Um, his, history will demonstrate that you never really know what's, what's right around the corner. But what I'm seeing right now, a couple of different things. This, this rift is real, right? It's, it's real, um, it, it's cutting through families, it's cutting through communities, through churches. Uh, that people who thought they shared the same faith are now looking at each other across this chasm saying, who are you? <laughs> what, how can you say these things? And 
and realizing maybe that similar religious language has, has papered over these really incredible differences um, for a long time and it just can't be ignored. So what we see happening is, um, I think Ed Setzer called it the evangelical reckoning, where we do see um, a number of evangelicals saying, no, this is not my faith. This is not, and then I see it clearly, oh, we need to talk. This is, this is not my Christianity. This is not my gospel. This is not my Jesus, right? And this is not my country. And so trying to, to, to change that, to, um, to stand out against it. Um, and we, we see a lot of people leaving churches. We see people, um, some, some pastors getting fired, uh, employees of Christian organizations either getting forced out or just walking away. Um, that is very real and it's happening. So the evangelical reckoning is happening on an individual level. What I also see is it's not happening much at all on an institutional level. Mm -hmm. And so when you have people, individuals leave organizations, leave churches, when you have Beth Moore leave the SBC, um, and this is being repeated on the local level, all over the country right now, mm -hmm. um, just you know, enough is enough, or you get fired. Um, who remains, right? The people who remain are often more radicalized. The voices of dissent are removed and they can go on with what they're doing. So, so I see both of those dynamics at play right now. A number of people who had kept quiet for a very long time, who had been complicit in many ways in allowing things to get to where we are now, are saying enough is enough, and there are all kinds of individual acts of courage. And at the same time, I see that institutions are really persisting in um, in these spaces and in some ways, uh, you know, radicalizing. And so I'm not really optimistic at this point. Um, the one other thing I think that has changed significantly is, uh, you know, Donald Trump is no longer in the White House. And that, I think, is hugely important because the real attraction there was power. Uh, right, power to protect Christianity, power to protect Christian America. And um, when, as, as soon as Donald Trump is no longer in the Oval Office, uh, he doesn't wield that kind of power anymore. Right? He's not the leader of the free world. Um, he doesn't even have a Twitter account. And I think that makes a real difference. It really does. And it doesn't mean that, you know, what, what's around the corner next, but I think the longer that he's in this diminished space, um, perhaps the better. And, you know, people are competing to kind of get out and find the next wave. And, um, you know, Ted Cruz tried at CPOC and um, that didn't go over all that long. And others are trying to position themselves. Um, but I, I, I don't really see that charismatic leader stepping out, which is what we had for the last four years. And I think that's um, just worth acknowledging. And, and it's, it's hard to know what's next. In Yeah, I think that the beginning of it is to identify this collusion of American, of the religion, the her heretical religion of American nationalism with orthodox, authentic Christianity. And the fact is, you know, in Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen does it so well. She shows us that, the, I mean, the problem is not that, that Americans think John Wayne is the Messiah. It's that they wish the Messiah looked a little bit more like John yeah. Wayne than the historical Jesus. You know, we, we don't really want a cross. We've got a gun. And if Jesus had had a gun, he might not have gotten killed. I literally saw that on a bumper sticker with the flag, right? So I think that's where we've got to identify that 
the religion of American nationalism has its own theology, manifest destiny, the doctrine of discovery, right? Uh, the, the religion of America has its own liturgy, its own holidays, its high holy days, July 4th. It's got its own creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Uh, it's got its icons and symbols, the flag, you know, the national anthem is its worship song. And if you d disrespect it, uh, you're in trouble. So like, we've got to bounce all of that off of Jesus and off of, of, of the real gospel. And I think we literally have a choice. As Jesus said, uh, we can't serve two masters. We've got to, we've got to decide who we will serve. Okay. So, he didn't mince any words. Uh, Shane Claiborne, I think, uh, frames this in such a way that we can see there is obviously a distinction between Christian nationalism and true allegiance to the work and teachings of Christ. Um, do you have any any thoughts about the last couple of video clips? That's uh, all we're doing by way of video tonight. I do want, if you have a couple more minutes, I do want to look at uh, very quickly a couple of passages of scripture uh, to help us kind of frame this. But do you have any uh, additional insights or thoughts uh, of what we've looked at uh, by way of video clips uh, here tonight? If not, I want us to um, take a look at Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. One of the things that I think is often misunderstood about this passage is what Paul is trying to communicate. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, this is following the great kenosis passage um, that uh, where it talks about Jesus laying aside uh, his God-given uh, rights, that type of thing, and didn't um, and did not consider equality with God as something to kind of uh, hold on to and and uh, uh, possess. But then it goes on, and in verse eight it says he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you were to read this with a nationalistic lens. One of the things that you would come up with is, see, Jesus is Lord, therefore everybody is to bow to him. Now, what I think is happening here is the way this passage starts is the emphasis is upon Jesus humbling himself, that he already held this position as the Son of God, and it begins in verse 5, which is interesting. The whole reason for this, at one time, this was a hymn of the early church. I don't know if it was set to music or not, but it was one of those poetic expressions. And that's why it's indented in your Bible, because this is poetry here uh, versus uh, the rest of the letter 
finding its way to the margins. But look at verse five. This is how it begins. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, although he has this position as the Son of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, as the NIV translates. But he humbled himself, he died on the cross, and as a result of that, God exalted him. And of course, the end vision of that is the lordship of Christ. Now, how this pertains, though, to uh, political theory in relationship to Jesus is Lord, therefore, we have the opportunity not only to convince people, but may even force them to recognize the lordship of Christ. But Paul goes on. And if you come down, he talks about not grumbling. Then he talks about uh, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus toward the end of the chapter. Then he makes an interesting comment. When you uh, come down here, I think it's in verse 27. Um, is that the one, or did I miss the chapter? Might have put the wrong. Anyways, um, there is, and I'm using my new Bible. I don't have this highlighted. Uh, where um, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Do you, do you have that outlined in your Bible? I'm sorry. I'm, um, here it is. Verse 20 of chapter 3. Verse 20 of chapter 3. I don't know how I got to verse 27. Sorry about that typo. He goes on down, he talks about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and then in chapter 3, he talks about not having confidence in the flesh, which is quite interesting, because in chapter 3, if there's anyone that would have this political mojo, it would be Paul. If you look at chapter 3, and you see in verse uh, 5, he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, I have all these credentials of being the perfect religious icon that people should follow. And then it says in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So that goes back to this uh, imitation of Christ that we saw in the kenosis or emptying passage in chapter 2. Then he goes on down. In verse 15, he talks about his own example. He says, all of us then who are mature should take a view of, uh, uh, takes, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. In other words, we are brothers and sisters within the family of God. And he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as uh, you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So there are uh, people that are pushing back against this type of 
uh, humility and emptying of self for the betterment of um, of the kingdom. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame because all they're thinking about is in the now. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, this is the verse that is often taken, I think, um, out of out of context as well as it, it emphasizes the wrong thing. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So sometimes Christians have a mindset that, um, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. That's what we should really be concerned about. Uh, it's the afterlife, not really this life. So uh, God allows us kind of to run things the way we want to down here. Our true citizenship is in heaven. But in the Lord's Prayer, we pray a line that I think is really reflective of what uh, Paul is trying to say. Our allegiance is in heaven, Jesus, as Lord. And we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. It's not to any other political uh, party or, um, uh, or commitment. Now, the reason this becomes uh, clear is if we understand uh, that Paul is writing to the Philippian church and uh, Philippi is a Roman colony. So Philippi was a city where there was a lot of retired military from the Roman Empire. So here is a group of people that gave uh, a, a ultimate allegiance to Rome, which you had to, or, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but Paul is pulling in this idea that you should empty yourself of all your self-interest and control and uh, self-centeredness to serve for the bigger vision, because the bigger vision is the kingdom of God, and our citizenship is uh, in the kingdom of God. Yes, it, it talks about heaven, but it's not talking about the destination of heaven. It's talking about the allegiance to the kingdom of God. So, yes, we recognize the lordship of Christ, and we obviously um, give our allegiance to him, but the way we show our allegiance is by following his example, by emptying ourselves from all this self-interest and control and power that we are trying to pursue many times to get our own way. So I think that's part of what Paul is trying to get across in this particular uh, uh, letter that he has written. Uh, in the book of Colossians, um, he is writing to another city in Asia Minor, part of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. We find that Colossae is uh, in there as well. Well, there's a lot of things that are happening uh, to the church in Colossae, and uh, he is writing to help them, uh, again, keep a a proper perspective on who Christ is. So in chapter one, after he gives a thanksgiving for the uh, uh, the uh, believers in Colossae, he then talks about, uh, in verse 15, 
Jesus being the image of the invisible God. So verse 15 says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. That's all this political stuff that uh, we've been talking about. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So then he goes on and uses the image of the body of Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So what I, I think these two passages are getting at is, yes, Christ holds ultimate exalted position. His kingdom is our first allegiance. But yet we follow his imitation of emptying ourselves from all our own self-interest for the betterment of, uh, of the whole. And if we can keep that in mind, I think it will diffuse a lot of the political division that often is taking place within Christianity. Uh, are we putting ourselves first? Most of the time we do. Or are we putting other people first? Have this same mind in you as was in Christ, it said in Philippians. So Jesus is Lord, uh, but we are not to use his lordship uh, to gain privilege for our particular expression of religion over other people. That's kind of what I'm taking away from this, is that I'm to serve. And that's the ultimate goal in this is to be a a, a good fellow citizen that serves other people. You have some thoughts on that? If not, I'll close our time tonight with one last slide. And this last slide is just to kind of contrast the kingdoms of men versus the kingdom of God. And I'll just kind of read them uh, as a way of just putting a cap on our time tonight. Number one, the kingdom Jesus came to establish is not of this world. Uh, he says so before Pilate in John 18, 36, for it operates differently than the governments of the world. Secondly, while all the versions of the kingdom of the world acquire and exercise power over other people, uh, the kingdom of God uh, is incarnated and modeled in the person of Jesus, and it's it's not power over, it's power under. And we find that in a variety of different illustrations, uh, going all the way back to when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Thirdly, the governments of the world seek to establish, protect, and advance their ideals and, agenda, and agendas by winning at all costs. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing in this whole Christian nationalism movement is uh, let's win at all costs, no matter what we've got to win. Fourthly, the kingdom of God is established and modeled after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it demonstrates the reign of God by manifesting the sacrificial character of God. So, you know, when we think about God, he could have pulled a, uh, a Zeus on us and, and, and forced his reign, but he chooses to go to the cross and uh, uh, and suffers a humiliating death as a way of expressing his concern for humanity. So uh, we all have to kind of determine what that will look like in our own 
situation? How can we help advance a better country that we live in? And how do we serve a country that we live in without, um, without you know, using a lot of these tactics that are actually quite opposite the character of Jesus? So that's kind of what I have for us tonight. Um, do you have any other thoughts or comments that you want to make on any of the video clips or comments tonight? So I don't know if this is helping you or not, but we just, we're going to look at one more lesson on this next Wednesday night and then we'll be done with it. But um, um, hopefully some of these authors uh, that are being interviewed uh, are helpful in framing for us our understanding of Christian nationalism. Um, not all Christians succumb to this, but I think what we are seeing is that there are many that are kind of pulled into it and, and their allegiance goes first to country versus Christ. Whereas if we put Christ first, we can serve our country better. At least that's kind of my perspective on it. So. Larry, where's where are the uh, the leaders of the particularly evangelical churches on this? In other words, if you went to a Southern Baptist convention, national convention, and and talked to the the, the grand poobah of the <laughs> Southern con, you know Baptist convention, what what would where would they be? I mean, are they addressing this? Are they concerned about it? Are they supportive of it? Are they are they ignoring it? I mean, what's their what, what, what's that? What is where? Where? where and, and also, if you look at the leaders of the other Protestant denominations, the head of the Methodist Church and all that, where where are all those individuals at on this? That's a great question. So earlier in our video, uh, Al Mohler was mentioned. Al Mohler, at least at one time, was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Al Mohler, uh, you remember in the video clip with Samuel Perry talking about how big is this movement? Is it fringe or is it something bigger? He says that Al Mohler at least initially saw this as kind of a fringe element um, as part of Christianity. And yet what Samuel Perry does in his books is he uses data to show that it's a much bigger movement within Christianity than um than what is often initially perceived. So my, my take on this, and I haven't read statements from heads of denominations and stuff like that, but my gut tells me that depending upon, depending upon where different denominations fall on the, um, conservative versus liberal spectrum. Uh, the more conservative, that being evangelical, um, would, would tend to dismiss uh, some of what has happened over the last couple of, of years as something that's an anomaly that doesn't really represent um, all. But yet at the same time, the people that they are endorsing um, hold to the one that instigated the Capitol riot. So it's it's interesting in that regard. 
People to the left, which would have a more liberal viewpoint on various things, would tend to lean more Democrat. So I think the, the way to answer that is it's a wide spectrum, but the farther right theologically people move, and, and with that, and this is an interesting dynamic as well, the more apocalyptic um, different denominations have of end time events, uh, the more they will align to this idea of using aggressive uh, tactics um, to either expedite the coming of Jesus or to be in control. I personally think that, um, as we saw in that study we did, Intersection, that those that want to control the narrative are people that will tend to um, be uh, very conservative, uh, small-minded in their understanding of the history of our nation, as well as uh, getting back to the roots of our nation and that type of thing. Uh, so the long-winded answer was is basically summarized like this. The farther right um, that um, you have of denominations, the more pro-Christian uh, nationalism you'll find. The farther left that you have uh, in different denominations, the tendency will be to see that as a threat and a danger. So I think Al Mohler has changed his viewpoints a little bit, okay? Um, and he doesn't see it as much as a fringe element. But somebody like Franklin Graham, I think is as still as far uh, to the right in support of, of uh, this Christian nationalism as he was from the day that Trump got elected. So I think it just kind of depends on the individual and, and the movement. I don't know if that would, would this explain why there isn't very much kickback on this person who got in lying his way into office. You know, from everything from his college education down to Santos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there as long as he lines up politically, they're gonna come to his defense, even though uh are, are you talking about George Santos or are you talking about Trump? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Santos. <laughs> they yeah. are two peas in a pod, but I uh, yeah. think this guy's um, worse. <laughs> yeah, everything about that uh, about Santos seems to have been a lie, where he manipulated a lot of yeah. the movements to get into the place where he's at. Yet there, it, you, these that um, are are you know to the far right of the Republican Party are still going to come to his defense because they want to maintain that that core. And uh, I think what we're seeing, the reason it took uh, McCarthy so long to become the Speaker of the House is um, there is some fringe divisions even within the political right as well. So what is going to happen on into the future, I, I don't know. But I think one of the things that we do see is that 
there are people that are finally drawing the line a little bit. So if they were all in initially, I think some are backing off a little bit. Maybe that's why they withheld their vote uh, for McCarthy as long as they did. Finally, politics won out, but it, it, it took a long time for it uh, to take place. I see the real danger personally in what's being modeled to the rest of the world. And so um, the events that recently happened in Brazil mm -hmm. uh, it, with um, the individual denying yeah. again and lying that the uh, election down there was rigged is right out of the playbook uh, of Donald Trump. And there was an insurrection there as well, um, if you follow international news. So yeah. That's my that's my fear is other people say it worked in the United States. We can do the same thing. So we'll see. But, you know, that's an example of it. OK, well, I've held you long enough. It's already 830. So, uh, you know, I, some of you got to get to bed. I understand. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's not right. a while yet. Yeah. OK, good. Yeah. Okay, thanks for being on tonight, and uh, we will um, finish this study next Wednesday night, okay? Thanks, Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.